0: Welcome to Rector's Cupboard, a podcast for people who are interested in questions of culture and faith. We ask these questions from outside the institutional structures of religion. We're glad that you're listening and hope that you enjoy and benefit from the conversation. Well, we are very grateful. Can you say extremely grateful? I think so. We are um, unbelievably grateful to have the guests who we will be interviewing today, uh, John Swinton and Daniel Whitehead. And you'll do the full introduction in a few moments. We also have a small studio audience here in the engine room reflector (laughs) Director's (laughs) Director's <laughs> Cupboard Studios. We're very and, fluid uh, with the title. And, we're, and we start off, of course. Uh, so Allison's here on the mic. Yes, and, if people and, hadn't picked that up yet. And Cupboard Master Ken. Yay, Ken. Yes. Has flown across town in the middle of a day, uh, yep. a day on a Friday, and has mixed drinks for all of us here. Like, so studio audience, alert, so tell us what we're drinking yes. and we'll say how much we like it.
1: So we have two different cocktails, but they have a common ingredient in them which is amaro. So amaro is an Italian sort of bitters liqueur and so I made two different ones. One is a spritz, which is more mm. of a summery, it's it's very common in Italy to have it as a as an something before dinner, an appetit uh, before dinner. And it's just Amaro and Prosecco and some soda and a little bit of orange uh, in there, half an orange wheel or something like that. And then a Negroni, oh, which Negroni. is a bit a bit of a stronger drink, often had after dinner, but uh, also has Amaro in it along with gin and vermouth, red vermouth, and some orange peel or orange zest in it. And so both have that sort of bitterness of of the uh, of the, the Amaro. Amaro and mm-hmm. they, and the Amaro and the gin are both from Woods and Which we're going to be doing an event at Woods yeah, in on the a 17th. couple weeks. Yes. So, uh, Wood Spirit Co. Correct.
2: Yes. I, I'm not sure that we can plug them enough. Here we, we're Here in big North fans.
0: Vancouver. Um, just, we'll put a picture of their, of their oh, product or something. Yeah, on it's the It's so episode beautiful. because their labeling is beautiful. Fantastic place. Highly recommended. Yes. Mm-hmm. We'll be hearing from Rabbi, Rabbi Do- Laura, Dr. Laura Duhang, Duhang Kaplan talking to us about uh, animals the bible
2: yeah it's it's gonna be it'll good it'll be delightful uh, so
0: anyway so try try
2: and, i've been drinking mine a little bit who has been? the spritz I, here how many
0: studio audience okay. people okay. have the spritz one sec.
2: about I'm have. Oh, like, oh, much half oh it went pretty much i have the spritz i like it a lot i'm the yeah
0: and then so the rest so of us are negroni if i'm doing
2: this properly i drink this now and then after i get that one
0: yes that's correct
2: okay just yeah. i, I want to make sure i'm doing this appropriately
0: uh, yeah. spritz is nice everybody it's good
1: and what about the the negroni
3: How are you finding that? John, what do you think? Mm, It's lovely. Uh, But I noticed it's in a whiskey glass. Yeah, I know. We we need...
0: (laughs) Okay. We do need... You bring those glasses out and you're like, people might know, and John does. (laughs) uh,
1: We need a better selection of glassware. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I think
0: it's kind of hard
1: not to... So anyway, so enjoy. We'll put the recipes up on uh, the website or whatever when we're in the notes when we're done. They're really great. Yeah. So Ken, enjoy it, and thank you, and so thank much you very and much for flying across, and Kentucky. I look forward to hearing the interview now.
2: Today we are pleased to have with us uh, Dr. John Swinton and Daniel Whitehead. Um, Daniel Whitehead is the CEO of Sanctuary Mental Health Ministries. Uh, Sanctuary's mission is to equip the church to support mental health and well-being. Uh, Daniel is a Regent College graduate and an ordained minister with over 10 years of full-time vocational church ministry experience in the UK. Uh, Dr. Swinton is the professor of practical theology and pastoral care, chair in divinity and religious studies at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland. Uh, he's also the founding director of Aberdeen Center for Spirituality, Health, and Disability and works as an ambassador with Sanctuary Mental Health. Uh, John and Daniel are here to speak with us about mental health and faith as well as the new course that has just been launched by like Sanctuary. On Wednesday. On Wednesday. Well, when this is recorded, it might be a yeah. few more days than that.
0: On Wednesday, May 4th.
2: <laughs> so and, uh, welcome. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Yeah,
0: great to have you guys both. I, I was thinking Daniel as Allison was doing the introduction. She's introducing kind of your role in in terms of um, leading an organization that addresses matters of mental health and wellness, and and then ten years in ordained ministry um, as someone who's been in in ministry myself, um, it's, it's interesting. Hey, there's a connection between mental health and ministry. Oh,
4: I, I mean, listen, this is a reoccurring thing. People come to work for Sanctuary and make sense of their experience of working for churches, <laughs> uh, and um, yeah. you know, in all seriousness, it's, it's it's a real thing, and yeah. I, I know that. Yeah, I know. You, I can sense so, you feel the same way. Yeah,
0: and in a way, your your pastoral ministry continues. Absolutely. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. well, thanks. We're really glad both of you are here. It's a real honour. I thought we'd start by asking each of you, whoever wants to go first, Ken, to give us a brief sketch of how you got to this kind of work that addresses both faith and mental health.
4: Yeah, well, that's a simple answer, John. Do you want to go first? I
3: could go
0: first.
4: Yeah, why not? Why
3: not? That's right. Well, I. that's a good question, actually. I... Uh, I spent 16 years as a nurse, so I I, kind of have been around people with mental health challenges in different areas for most of my formative years. like So I, I trained as a, originally as a psychiatric nurse and then I retrained as a nurse with people with intellectual disabilities or mental deficiencies it was then. And then it mm-hmm. became mental handicap. Then it became learning disabilities. Then it became intellectual disabilities. And there's something important about the way in which these names shift over time. Mm-hmm. Like uh, this is politics more than uh, mm-hmm. medicine in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, so my formative years were with... Uh, People who just see the world differently, who have come to know what God means and who God who, who God is differently. You know, if you if you hear voices or if you have you know severe depression, in, your faith life's different. It's not it's not different as in terrible. It's just different, different. because mm-hmm. your experience is differently. And so when in whenever it was nineteen eighty nine, I uh, came into academia. All I did was do the same thing again in a theological context like so but I always, the way I put it is that uh, uh, my nursing and I, I, was a, I was a mental health chaplain for a bit in the midst of that as well so mm. I've been across three professions over my years so my, my nursing and my chaplaincy work was my place of formation right so it's it shapes and forms the way you see the world and the things that you think that about the world and then my theological uh, career has been my, my place of uh, vocation so when I work at work how do you answer these kind of questions In a theological context mm-hmm. Now, What does it mean if you've got dementia And you've forgotten who Jesus is But you're still worshipping Jesus These kind of really unusual yeah. questions Which is unusual because you, In theology You always bring a certain set of questions with you And a lot of the times that comes from the academy Or comes from what it is mm-hmm. So I was fortunate to be able to take an, a different set of questions To come out of that experience And ask the tradition and the scripture Well how can I make sense of this and that's how so I came to be who right. I am. Like yeah. it's, it's it's quite a, a walk through those various
0: roles and jobs, and but all woven together by a vocation, which you can see through the whole thing. No. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah. Looking back, right? Stories yeah. are great yeah. looking back. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Daniel, how about you?
4: Yeah, I mean... I. I was a a pastor for for eight years I led a church I was a youth pastor for two years before that and I was burnt out and had no language for that let alone no self permission or or no way of framing that Um, and I I came to uh, Vancouver because I'd always dreamed of being there I studied at Regent because I'd heard a guy called Daryl Johnson do some lectures Mm -hmm. and another guy called Rick Watts and I thought oh they're saying some cool things so um, I came to Vancouver to hang out at, at, at Regent and um, yeah, it, it, you know, my wife and I felt a, a pull here. So we kind of sold everything we had, which wasn't a lot moved here. And then I needed to find a job and someone, someone suggested not for profit and gave me this job for this little non-profit called sanctuary. Yeah. And when I applied for the job, I think I was a 26th applicant. I was the only non Canadian and they wanted the new director to take it nationally. And in my interview, I said, can I take it internationally? because I know there is a need for this in the UK mm. and um, and I think the board were just happy that someone uh, has that question yeah. 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 <laughs> so and 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 so here we are but but I've honestly sanctuary has been such a gift to me personally to make sense of my experiences of leading a church as someone who loves the church but has this strange relationship with yep. it because yeah. I've been so kind of burnt by it. And yeah. I didn't blame anyone. Honestly, I'm not pointing the finger. It's yeah. just, it's just what happens. So, um, yeah. So now I get to lead sanctuary and build this thing that is helping churches to include yeah. people and, and, and to, uh, and that's yeah. being built so well. I'm so yeah.
2: grateful. Now, you guys have at Sanctuary a new course that you have just released this last week um, which is really exciting and, and we've taken some looks at it and we're, we'll talk a little bit more about that but can you tell us a little bit about the course what kind of difference it's hmm. making um, what what you kind of hope that it will accomplish?
4: Yeah absolutely so um, the vision for the Sanctuary course has always been that we would create this This easy to use resource that helps a church to begin a conversation. Because mental health is huge. Everyone wants to talk about it. But let's face it, if you're a little church like the one I used to lead on the Mm. south coast of England, where do you begin? This is such a huge so so basically we took all of the work we'd done as a local organization and distilled it into this really easy to use straightforward resource that helps facilitate these safe conversations and we have struck gold uh, there was always a risk but we realized very quickly when we launched the first version ah, people need this and they want this. We had downloads in over 60 countries, over 165,000 people went through the course and we had no marketing budget and, and hardly any staff. So now as we've got bigger by God's grace and we've had to take some risky steps, but we feel like this is our moment. So now is the time to launch the new course and we're kind of going as big as we can yeah. to, to really raise awareness but it's it's just there to help churches begin safe conversations so that the church can become a, a more compassionate caring place around mental health yes yeah, specifically around people in the midst of crisis it, it, you know i've never met a person who ever planned on having a diagnosis of bipolar one disorder so it's really about equipping people with the, the framework the language the shared understanding that when these things happen which they do the church is a safe place and and our dream is that the church worldwide would be known as the safest place to go when you're in the midst of a crisis and that's a huge vision. Like that's kind of a ridiculous vision, but but God willing, <laughs> we have given it a darn good try uh, to I do that. It's such a, it's such a beautiful cause and and
0: call. Um, I and I and I think of I'm just as you're saying that I'm picturing churches, various traditions, denominations, backgrounds, whatever, where there's all kinds of stigma and such around mental health, or just confusion, theologically, I say, misunderstanding, these, as yeah, as well. these kinds yeah. of things. And I would think that some of those places having something from outside their official you know structure of their church mm. that they can kind of reach out to this and and use it as they you know see fit yeah. and and it, and open those conversations it's just i spent a good deal of time looking through the new material and uh i was deeply deeply impressed by it i i thought uh, how it it took you know, just the topics, first of all, mental health, mental illness, caregiving, stigma. These are kind of the each, each session. Um, and then those are broken down into like the psychological perspective, the social perspective. I loved how you had in each one uh, art yeah. uh, ways yeah. of speaking and listening yeah. that even, even reading through it when I'm just preparing for an interview, yeah. but I'm reading through it and there's this piece of art. And I realize as I'm looking at that, oh, some people just hear things differently. Absolutely. And this is healing for me, even as I'm, you know, preparing for an interview to see, oh, I could see how this would really resonate with with some people. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine people go to the sessions and get to that art place and just feel welcome or something, right? Um, It's in a theological perspective, which of course for somebody like me mattered uh, a lot. And then I think in all or most most sessions, there's a section that is an actual exercise, like try this thing, write this thing down or do this. And then I also really loved and appreciated that each section ended with a prayer. Mm-hmm. And I thought obviously you curated those and made sure yeah. how, you know, but, um, those prayers were expansive. They mm-hmm. were beautiful. Uh, they were faithful. And, uh, I think that, you know, obviously the ability for you guys to address, uh, that spiritual and, yeah. and, uh, faith aspect. So I was going to ask actually John, um, having, you know, me singing those praises, what has your role been in this process? Like where have you engaged with, with the material, um, and how does it resonate with the kind of work you do, like some of the things you've just described?
3: Yeah, well, my my role has been primarily as an ambassador for the organization, because I'm in a fortunate position where I, I get invited to speak to various places in different countries and different contexts. And I uh, always am asked, what would you recommend in relation to uh, mental health and sanctuary materials there? Yeah. That, that, well, there's nothing, there's nothing like it. So, it's easy for, easy to do that. So I, that's that's kind of what my formal role is. But the way in which I, I think about the materials is that the the um, uh, because we live in a kind of really highly medicalized society, it's difficult to talk about mental health other than in medical terms, right? Mm. It's almost impossible to think about health and illness without thinking about medicine. Even though most of the healing that goes on in society goes in your home to your friends or you go to the the chemist and you do whatever whatever it is. So it's difficult to get past that. And so we learn the grammar of medicine in relation to Mm. mental health. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, of course, medicine and psychiatry are very important dynamics, but it's not the only way that you can speak about things. And the, the, the challenge for the church, for me, is what do you bring to the table that nobody else is bringing? Mm-hmm. So if, you, if all you're doing is training counsellors, for example, mm-hmm. well, there's better counsellors over here <laughs> who do it for a living. Like. Um, so what you're what you bringing to the table, and what the church is bringing to the table is, is a different grammar. A different way of looking at things, a different set of language, uh, languages to talk about mental health that's not available elsewhere, to talk about the idea that even in the midst of your symptoms you can be well. You know. mm. And so uh, the way I think about the sanctioned materials is th- they give us the grammar to talk uh, faithfully about difficult experiences without being drawn into a language which is not our own which is important because we need to be able to talk that talk to that language and to talk well with people who use that language. But at the same time, we need to have confidence to bring our own stuff to the table. Mm. And I think the science materials do that for all of us. Oh Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah, So I see, I see that there's clearly this, this need for the church to have that voice. But I think that, that there have been, well, many people who maybe have experienced not that voice when they've gone to the church. Um, and so it's, it seems like this this program that, that you guys have, have developed that, um, I mean, I feel like I need to mention, it's free. Like, yeah. there, there, there's no barriers to, like, accessing well, this. Like, just go get it. That's
3: why it's so popular in Scotland.
2: <laughs> 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 like, I, I, I see a huge need for it because I think even people within the church that, that would wish to be, you know, kind and compassionate and, and help people who are experiencing mental health challenges haven't necessarily had a great place to start from and i mean when we when we look back at at you know people's experiences in the church why why do you guys think i mean either one of you guys um why do you think that that mental health has been so difficult in historically for the church to to address well what what have Mm. you seen you've needed to kind of try to help the to the church kind of course correct
4: on Mm. It's funny, last night I was having um, dinner with um, uh, Roy Salmond, who you may know. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. Uh, John and I are having dinner together and Roy asked me a question around like, a theology of self-care. And I said, well, if John Swinton were here, yeah. I think he'd say this. <laughs> and I just kept looking over him and I answered for John. I feel like I could do the same thing now. Um, the one thing I would say is Sanctuary's work is heavily influenced by John's work. Like, it really is. I, can it's see that, that. I can Yeah, see I mean, that. it's kind of obvious. So, um, yeah, we, we believe what John is saying and what John is writing is worthy of every church knowing. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, in some ways we kind of you know, unofficially see ourselves as a, a mouthpiece for a lot of what John has, has given his life to working on. Um, I, I'll have a go at the first. There's so many answers to this, but one of them I, I am kind of hung up on is I think... Um, I think that at least the kind of faith I grew up with, implicitly, there was this tension between um, uh, science and faith seen as this yep. these diametrically opposed yep. forces. And I do think that is a major issue for many churches implicitly, is that our... our uh, distrust of science you could maybe even root it all the way back to Freud you know the father of psychiatry and and also a father of suspicion someone mm-hmm. who unraveled yeah. many sacred things that people didn't want unraveling it kind of set it off on this secularized I know uh yeah parentheses don't work on on podcasts, <laughs> but you know this this uh, you know what I mean folks that, this secularized um uh, agenda for 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 the whole psychology world and um I don't Mm. think that's helped. And I think very often if if you have a skewed view of science, a distrustful view of science, Mm. it's very hard to listen to anything clinical research has to say. And we've learned more about the organ of the brain in the last 20 years than in the rest of human history put together. Um, You don't listen to the voice of lived experience because it's like, well, you don't really, you just need the Bible and um And mm-hmm. this idea that you can read the Bible in a vacuum, which is a, a worryingly common idea that it can literally inform every aspect of right. everything that you yeah. engage with in the world, to which you know yeah <laughs> as as someone who loves the Bible and yeah. loves theology, yeah. that is not true yeah. like and and God hasn't hmm. made the world that way, so I think that is one area that's a major sticking point, yeah, because yeah, yeah. the idea that this is a secular thing, and it doesn't really belong in the church, yeah.
0: What about your experience, John, and I was going to ask later about, uh, any, and particularly any difference you see in this kind of question um, between the European context and the North American context, or have you seen similar things?
3: Well, I, mean, I think that some of the key issues are theological, and they, they cross both the uh, across the Atlantic. I mean, one of the things is uh, that... Mental health challenges can be quite challenging to people's faith, right? So if you have a faith that assumes that you should always be happy, mm. and you yeah. uh, uh, then you have encountered something like depression, then what people tend to do is try to explain this experience by saying you're not faithful enough or you, or you should pray more or you should read your Bible more and so on and so forth. As if happiness was the goal of faith. <laughs> but then you, know, you think about it, you look at the, the gifts of the spirit that Paul lays out in Galatians, he doesn't mention happiness. No. So where do we get happiness? You get it from society. So you should, society says happiness is, is the, the way that you know life and all of its fullness should be. And then you read the Psalms of Lament and say, no, it's not. <laughs>
2: <Sadness> <laughs> yeah, there's pretty big parts of the Bible that you have to overlook <laughs> exactly. to, to subscribe to that.
3: So, but it's that kind of automatically trying to um, uh, explain yeah. something, using the language you think you know or you're most com- comfortable with, which is what you've been brought up in that way, uh, to explain to people, other people's experiences. And then, then you actually increase their suffering. Mm. And so one of the things I think is important about sanctuary is... It takes seriously, sticking with depression, it takes seriously the medical dimensions of that, the, the mm-hmm. importance of medication, but also challenges the theology. It says you, you can't create a mentally healthy, friendly congregation if you actually are uh, preaching a mentally unhealthy mm. uh, gospel. And indeed, a gospel that's not particularly accurate, accurate. And maybe it makes you feel better, and maybe you can get away from your fear in this situation, but there's something wrong. And so I think the material... do both of these
2: things no so so just a a follow-up Daniel for that do you see that that with kind of that that distrust of science that has kind of I think been bred into at least I would say evangelical Christianity and I think other aspects of of the Christian faith as well do you see kind of your position as as an institution like for for sanctuary to kind of be that intermediary to be kind of a uh, an organization that churches might trust to kind of mm. translate some of that clinical um, material yeah. into something that feels like uh, an organization that takes faith seriously. Yeah. And, and is that what you kind of see some yeah. of your role as?
4: Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, it's important for me as, as much as, you know, People in North America hear my accent and assume that I wear a bowler hat and you know, have he's a, not, have a butler or something side. like that. You know, it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, took from, I'm yeah, <laughs> I took off, I left it outside with the butler. Um, no, I mean, I, I had a very normal sort of lower socioeconomic background, right? Mm-hmm. The kind of people I sp- spent time with, whom I still love, and some of the most honest people I know, uh, these are not the highfalutin people who want complicated ideas. So, I think yeah. the challenge is this. This subject does get very complicated when you, yeah. when you begin to peel back layers. But I see Sanctuary's goal as trying to help take a very, what could seem a very complicated and scary conversation, which is informed by theology and clinical thought and with the voice of lived experience and making it a very palatable, safe journey to go on. Uh, yeah. that's, that I would see that as a key part of what Sanctuary does well and what I'm excited about is that um, skillfully our team, it's not me, it's our team, have put <laughs> together a resource that takes people on a journey through, through um clinical research through theology through the arts mm-hmm. which are very important to us yeah. as an organization to allow different connection points and and it yeah. takes people on a journey that at the end of it they're being exposed to different ways of seeing the world and i, I, no. I
0: think that's part of why it resonated so much with me i think yeah I, I had this kind of response that that uh the the hopeful theology of it that mm. there's so much more going on than than simply speaking about uh, mental health and wellness and um, and you mentioned, Daniel, um, how much of John's work informs kind of the ethos and the material. I picked that up as well. And, and John, in, in your work, the, the first book that I read of yours was uh, Becoming Friends of Time. And for the audience here and others, um, there's two books like here. They're in the room here behind you guys. And for me, becoming, like, finding Jesus in the storm uh, kind of ministers to your soul, <laughs> particularly in a time like this. And becoming friends of time made me so excited that there was a theology big enough for like the whole world and and, and so um, hopeful. And so much of it spoke to, uh, if you're speaking about mental health, how s- so many of us can struggle with if we feel a sense of meaninglessness or purposelessness, that that can spin us down into, into difficulty, even and sometimes oh, pastors, oh. You know, interestingly feeling yeah. this. And so much, John, of that book it has such a high and beautiful view of vocation. So I, while you're here, I, I kind of wanted to ask you about that, how you think ideas around mental health um, interact with that concept of vocation.
3: Well, there's a couple of things I'd say. Um, firstly, in relation to, uh, in relation to time, uh, I think sometimes we don't realise how spiritual time is, right? So, uh, and how that's linked in with the way in which we create society, right? So think about what spirituality is, roughly. It tries to answer four questions, right? Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going to and why? Okay. Who am I? Where do I come from? Where am I going to and why? It, religions try to, to answer that, but people also try to answer that in that kinda of existential way. Um, within a capitalist society like ours, how do you get your value? Well you get your value from money. And you get your value from your work. And how do you how do you gauge the value of your work? Well, by the amount you work. Which is why, why, you know, when somebody retires, it's a spiritual crisis, because yeah. they don't know who they are, why, where they come from, where they're going to, and why. Uh, and because all your value comes from that. And so people who live their lives slowly in that context are, are devalued. Like, so people with profound intellectual disabilities, people who are slowed down by mental health challenges, lose their value, because there's an association between that speed, that yeah. competitiveness, and your, your worth as a human being. And so noticing the way that we use time is really, really important. And, and noticing that spiritual dynamic, de- That's why retirement is so It's cru- important. If you're ever coming towards retirement, you lose your identity. Mm. That's why, that's why uh, recognising that inherent spirituality within culture is really important. Huh. Because <coughs> if you don't notice that, then you think that the way that you live, the time you mm. live in, the, the speed you live in is just ordinary. Mm. But as soon as you notice it, you need to slow down. So that, that that and I think in, in relation to to mental health, that's exactly what it is. not least. Because a lot of uh, depression and anxiety is caused by the speed of society, mm-hmm. by that idea that you never st- st- never stay still. You're always thinking about the next thing. You're always thinking about the next thing. You're never in the, s- the same space where you're just saying, oh, I'm present. You're looking for something else. Maybe, yeah. maybe you're all thinking, <laughs> that's me. Because it's definitely yeah. me, yeah. but it's definitely yeah. unhealthy. Yeah. It? And then you get anxiety, and then you get depression. And so they're all tied up uh, together. So thinking through what time is and how you use your time yeah. is, is actually really important for mental health
2: well yeah. and am i remembering correctly john oh goodness now that i'm quoting you back to you i, I really <laughs> hope i'm correct on. <laughs> oh no too late i'm too far into this um i seem to recall from i from never said reading that reading <laughs> reading your book that you actually define what what like the purpose of time is that like there's a difference between culturally you, you talk of this productivity this efficacy that that seems to be what what society thinks time is for and I, so
0: You're remembering I, well so far. I uh, could, yeah.
2: Um, that you go. The purpose of time is is for love. Like, and and that, like, in in one sounds, kind of sounds a little like, o- almost trite. But it's so profound when you actually think about it. When you go, oh, so if the purpose of love, if the purpose of my time is for love, that that changes how you understand your vocation, how you understand. Yeah your career. Please tell me am I right yeah, you said, I think you said that. <laughs> it's great. Okay, good. Uh, you can take credit if you like. It. It. Uh, uh, no. if you're you're welcome say to that. I, said, I never said, I said it but it I, I thought oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 <So.
3: laughs> <laughs> But yeah, well but why do you have time? Yeah. Well you have time because it's gifted to you by God. So the God who is love gives you the gift of time. So therefore what uh, the only reason you have time is because it's a gift of love. So what do you want to do with it? Give it away. That's so beautiful. And so, and in terms of, just to go back to your question on vocation, that's really, really important. What's your vocation? Your vocation is doing what you're told. God says, this is what I'd like you yeah. to do. Now think about the story of, of Moses, right? So Moses uh, gets his vocation from God, right? And what does he say? He says, uh, I can't do it because I've got a stutter. Yeah. So what does God do? Does he say, oh, just a second, okay. I'll heal you, Moses, and then you can do it. He says, no, do what you're told. <laughs> I'll give you people <laughs> to help you, but just do what you're told. Like, so Moses, with his disability and everything else, goes off and does what he's told. And, and I think that's, that's, that's learning to, to live a life where you're happy to do what you're told by the goddess who is love mm. is profoundly important.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's... it's I, I remember reading in your book, and by the way, for make sure you read Becoming Friends of Time, it's those who are listening, so those who good. are here. <laughs> um, and anything by John, but the... the uh, Uh, There were I can't I don't have them in my mind right now exactly but sentences sentences that I underlined um, talking about the things vocationally and otherwise that people who uh, struggle with time like do things more slowly Um, I think one time you mentioned like somebody you know how long it takes them to tie their shoes or something that's right but what we can learn all the things we're longing for that we we want to get off of this like incessant demand of productivity. Um, or constantly checking our phone or constantly like where will we hear these things we'll hear them um, from people who who can't accomplish things that quickly. Right. It's so wonderful.
4: So awesome. And Malcolm Guite says something similar, similar to that. When he talks about very often someone in the midst of depression, for instance, is seen as something wrong with them. Malcolm Guite would say, maybe there's something right with them. Maybe they're seeing the world the way it is. And actually in some ways they're a spiritual antenna for us to slow us down, to make us think differently. And I think there's a, there's something in that. Yeah. We'll, we'll
0: link his name because it's his work and poetry and writing and stuff fits right into
4: this. Mm -hmm.
2: Um, so I, I wanted to, to ask a question for, for both of you. Um I, I noticed, John, particularly in in your last book. It was m- more striking than your last book, in in Jesus, finding Jesus in the storm, your your terminology matters. And you already kind of alluded to kind of these shifts that have happened yeah. throughout <laughs> your careers. Um but I noticed that you don't you don't use the term mental illness, you use mental health challenges. Um and that you wouldn't say like somebody is a schizophrenic but they live with schizophrenic schizophrenia or under the diagnosis of schizophrenia um why why does that terminology matter why what what's the difference between labeling something as a mental illness and a mental health challenge what difference does that make for both like the the person who may be impacted by that or or the person who maybe labels somebody as that
3: yeah, well I'm 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 not the language police. So I, I don't I not <laughs> want to tell anybody what they can, people yeah. can go whatever. However, I think it's important cuz the way that you describe the world uh, determines what you think you see. Yeah. And what you think you see determines how you respond to what you think you see. So it matters what you think you see. And language is the way that we come to know the world really for, for many of us not for everybody, but for many of us. Is. So if you call something uh, 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 a mental illness, then straight away you're saying this is something that belongs to the professionals. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. Professional care is excellent, very good. Um, but is that the only story? Is that the only way mm. that it can be described? And the answer is no. Mm. So your description of you as, a, as someone who has with, with a bipolar disorder is certainly a true description, but it's not the only description yeah. because you're a friend, you're a lover, you're a, yeah. a husband, wife, whatever you are. You're all of these things. The problem with a me- in the mental health context is. Uh, mental health diagnoses are sticky labels, right? Yeah. So as soon as you have a, a diagnosis of, uh, say, schizophrenia in particular, because it's highly stigmatised, yes. that's what you become. You don't. I mean, if I, I, I don't. If I have influenza, I don't become the flu. You don't yeah. say, "Oh, you are you flu." You're, you're in flu. <laughs> <laughs> like, Although lately, <laughs> maybe, maybe COVID that, that might yeah. Well, a lot even right. then, that that gets dangerous yeah. because it yeah. happens to focus on minority groups. That, yeah, that, that, that's that Uh, uh, um, But when you get something like schizophrenia, you you become it. You become a schizophrenic. Now, what's that, like a Spaniard or a Londoner or a Vancouverite? Is that what you call it, Vancouverites? Yes. That's that's (laughs) (laughs) that's what what you're called now. And so, and, and then... People build all sorts of caricatures on top of that, like, and so you become a, an alien person. Like, and as, of course, as soon as you uh, get that new persona, that you live into it. So yeah. other people will treat you that way, and then you live into it yourself. So self stigma becomes a reality. People other stigmatize people. People stigmatize you from the outside, outside and inside. You lose your sense of worth and yeah. value, and it all comes down. And that's not just because you have schizophrenia. That's because of the place that you have schizophrenia, the
2: social mm. context. Yeah. Yeah. How have you seen? Uh, in your work at Sanctuary, Daniel?
4: Yeah, I mean, we talk a lot about uh, stigmatizing language and, and how we create realities with our language. And, um, you know, I, one of the things that I think is often received the best in the course, at least in the first version, was around language, giving people real practical language on how to talk about this subject. Mm-hmm. So to take an example of, like, very common parlance in, in society is to say someone committed suicide. Mm-hmm. I'm like, well, when do we ever use that language of commit? We, yeah. we we commit crimes. Yes. We commit, so suddenly there's this stigma that's yeah, attached. That's where to it. it comes from? Unconsciously, yeah. it's there, mm-hmm. and um, and all the research we have about people who attempt uh, suicide and survive, is that this wasn't so much a crime as it was a, a, a desperate need to rest, a desperate need to escape the pain of being so misunderstood and hurting so much. And I mean, there's more that can be said about that, but I think in that context, it's. Uh, it's it, this is it's not a good thing to do, to use yeah. language in that crass way and, and to strip people of their image of God's status. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's just mental health. I mean, I sit here thinking the ways our culture wants to define people in all kinds of ways, in ways that are entirely secondary to people's status yeah. as beloved children of God.
2: Mm-hmm. No, I, I see it as a way to like, Almost like a a reclaiming of humanity for people to say like you you exist outside of these, these factors that maybe you have no control over. Maybe like I've seen nuances in language around addiction and homelessness and Hmm. and I go, oh, oh, I hadn't thought about that. But I'm so grateful that somebody did because it it helps me rehumanize people. And yeah. it helps me understand that that they are not a diagnosis or a place that they reside, that they are a human, they are an, an image bearer, as yeah. you were talking about. And I, I think it's very important.
4: I think one of the other things as well, though, is, is often to challenge myself and others to think that, you know, what's the difference between me and that, that person living on the streets who's addicted? probably relationships is it Uh, Mm. you know if i fell on hard times i know enough people because i'm privileged enough who would not let me and my family Mm -hmm. live on the streets i think maybe even some people in this room would say no no we can't let that happen to you and um if you're someone i'm going to start crying thinking about it if (laughs) if you're someone that doesn't have that support network what chance do you have you know? So, it's, um, uh, yeah.
0: it, this is a, you open the door for me for a question that I kind of wondered, should I ask this? And, and I will, because these kinds of questions uh, tend to be very personal, but given, given what, how you're just speaking and, um, around all of this stuff that we're talking about, um, mental health and, and the program, uh, the course and the, uh, vocation, um, I, I'm aware in the work that I do and have been blessed to do, uh, through the years and, that there is something so positive about when you're working on something that you know matters and mm-hmm. that you like, and then for for people like us who claim Christian faith, and um, this stuff for both of you has also informed and infused and energized your own faith. Um, if you're if you're able or willing, can you share with us how, even just a bit? Oh.
4: That's a great question. John was talking to—we were talking about prayer earlier on, about our prayer lives. We were, I'm not going to confess John's prayer life, <laughs> <laughs> and he's not going to confess mine to you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think the world—the um, world has become a far greyer and more liminal place. The more I've lived authentically in the world, and I'm okay with that. I hear you. Yeah, I, and I have to be you know uh, uh again as we were driving here we were talking about someone who who lost a child a, a very young child and i just lamented on the spot so i don't know what to do with it yeah. other than to say there is no purpose that's worth the loss of that child and john said sounds like a great lament well, mm-hmm. there's no answer there's no it's just authentically living and i think um implicitly that wasn't the faith I necessarily grew up Uh, with but I love what one of your former guests another friend of ours Monica Coleman Dr. mm, Monica Coleman said which is she said I wish someone had told me when I was younger that your faith changes and it's meant to yes so mine is changing (laughs) I guess but I think I'm a more compassionate person I think I'm a more understanding person and I'm more okay living in a world that is gray and scary a lot of the time
1: Mm.
0: yeah
4: that's very well put yeah thank you
0: um So uh, it would be along similar lines. Well, I'll ask this question first. Um, We're... How many times have we said this on the podcast? We're coming out of the pandemic. No, you um, say that. Okay, I say that. When is this airing? Is this airing in like three years? Todd time? Yeah. keeps saying this.
2: Yeah. Todd keeps saying yeah. this.
0: Since like a month in, we've been running series uh, yeah, called yeah. like "After This" and stuff. Like <laughs> what, but uh, um, I think we're in late pandemic. We're in late. <laughs> Oh, I hope so. I really hope so. <laughs> um, what about so that it's particular to this time um, in terms of the work you do? faith, mental health, uh, what have you noticed? So it's kind of the question that lots of people have asked in lots of contexts. What have you noticed about this particular
3: time in mental health? Well, uh, in relation to mental health, uh, what I've noticed through the pandemic in relation to human beings is that we're not quite as nice as we perhaps thought we would like. Oh, I know, eh? It's a bit depressing. Like, it's almost <laughs> we like. I
0: thought we're all in this together was gonna actually be more than a day well, or
3: two. We're all in this together is great, depending on what the size of your boat is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big storm, but it's a small boat. The, um, the toilet roll thing. Right, so at the beginning of the pandemic, is that uh, Scotland too? Uh, well, no, Scotland's different. Okay, they <laughs> <laughs> don't use sunnycakes. We don't use we're, <laughs> <Problem laughs> <better. laughs> <laughs> <laughs> we're built differently. Yeah. The, uh, the, uh, yeah. So why do people do that? Well, I, I was reading some interesting research. The reason people do that is because they're anxious, right? right. So yeah. it, it's something that they can cling on to in a situation which is really uncertain. But then they get anxious and take all the food. And so you get empty supermarkets. And who's, who's the people that don't get anything? Yeah. The weak, the vulnerable, the immobile. Yeah. Yeah. And so we don't love our neighbour. And then what happens then is vaccines comes out. And what happens? We do the same thing. <laughs> we hold them. People and then have, like, we, we send them off. Four like, boosters and whatever. Exactly. Yeah. exactly. We send them off to other countries when the, the sell-by date is just a bit weird. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah, we can't true. get rid of it. It's true. And then the variant so,
0: comes back and we're like, what's So going
3: right. Why me, God? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <If all> the- <laughs> And so, so, so there's that is that. And so, we're not looking after neighbours. And so, there's lots. And the second thing is that there's lots of people about that, that, that you can see it very clearly with the lockdowns. Lots of people who have been socially isolating for years mm-hmm. because nobody's ever visited them. So yeah. we all have. We, we all socially isolate, and so we're saying, "Oh, this is terrible. This is awful. Nobody's visiting. I can't." But there's people that live their lives like that yeah, all the time, the whole time, like yeah. And so the pandemic's revealed that, like but also a practical sense, being locked down, being away from work, being away from people, uh, uh, and being yeah. alone with your own thoughts for an extended period of time is not a healthy way, yeah. so anxiety, oh, it's cognitive tra- you know that trap yeah. of f- that thought that goes around your head again and again and again. Yeah. Uh, depression, th- these things are, are, are yeah, and under- you wonder nice. how
4: much of a residue they'll be, Sorry. yeah can't but be here. one I was going to say, and one more, it's like maybe it's too, um, naive of me to say it, but one more hopeful thing I had during the pandemic was that people's uh, people were maybe understanding that they're not defined by what they can do and what they can produce Uh because suddenly everyone couldn't thank you for something do you remember (laughs) (laughs) but do you remember when we were like looking at celebrities singing earnestly on cameras because they had nothing else to do and it's like oh yeah Yeah. none of us have really much to contribute this is so I hope maybe on some level we've realized that we are more than that that relation we are relationally defined we're not defined by what we do I don't know yeah. i don't know if we're just going to recall yeah. back to you know w- well it's interesting we to
0: see things like you know the great resignation and stuff that are all yeah. related to these kinds of things that you yeah. mentioned i have one more question for each of you and you know we ask it at the end of most of our interviews uh, before we take a couple questions from um from our studio audience here um and that is uh so generally what you can both answer this or one of you or what, uh, what gives you hope right now like, no, he doesn't have to be, like, right now. <laughs> like, it could be, though. Ne- this Negroni is awesome. Uh, <laughs> like, like, at this at this point in time uh, in, in the world, what makes you hopeful?
3: I, I'm still a firm believer in the gospel. I, I'm still quite happy that despite the problems that Jesus has got under control, so I, I still have my old hope. <laughs> it could mm. be a slightly different form, but I, I'm still sitting in the same place.
0: Yeah,
4: mm. yeah and, and, and maybe to... A, a very practical thing. I mean, t- one thing is like we we're about to release this little film of our patron, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah. Like
0: oh, we had to in our notes to mention that. Oh, just drop, yeah. just drop that yeah. name, Justin Welby, just, the current Justin Archbishop.
4: Yes,
2: Canterbury. he Who also thinks that sanctuary is great. Who was he just does.
0: visiting our country? Right? Did you yes. get to see him when he was here? No.
4: No, we tried, but his okay. his, his a little busy. Calendar was a little busy. A little yeah. busy. Yeah, oh, yeah. Oh, he didn't have thirty minutes for me. But anyway, I won't hold it against him. But he he's just we're just about to release a little film of him, you know, talking about the sanctuary course and how great it is. And as part of that, he starts by saying, "You know, I'm Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury, and I live with depression." And wow. I, I think that's a very hope-filled, in a weird way, statement. I hear that what he is saying. Yeah. He is saying that. And um, yeah. and similar, similarly, we're we're hearing things from um, from the Vatican through from the Pope through friends of friends and organisations we network with. That similarly, he, his heart for this subject is, is there as well. So that gives me mm. hope that we're going to wow. we're going to talk about these well things. Well said. Thank you both yes. so much. We're going to take a couple questions.
2: Yeah. Uh, So, this one we've got, um, how does engaging and embracing people with mental health challenges um, help the church expand its imagination? And this seems maybe in terms of, like, how we are called to be the church. Um, And they've got, example, if we are made in God's image, what does that mean for someone uh, with bipolar 1, for example?
4: Mm. Mm. That's a a great question, and I think... um, you know, of course, every, every person <laughs> is individual and um, every person has different strengths. And, and sometimes these sticky labels, as John said, or, or these, exper- these unique experiences can, um, can, make, can make a person seem different or I don't understand this. Mm-hmm. But um, I think if we can listen long enough to a person's lived experience listen to their story listen to their their own understanding john john talks about um having a phenomenological um disposition in his book finding jesus in the storm i think you know listen to the story suspend your own ideas of what should be don't don't should on people um just (laughs) just listen and 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 it can lead you to some really interesting places i think i think that's that's probably what i'd say but there's, there's probably more to be said.
3: I've forgotten the question. (laughs) I was was just laughing at don't shoot on people. (laughs) And then wondering whether I should laugh. (laughs) And then I lost the question. I didn't laugh. (laughs) Is it appropriate? (laughs) Is it funny? (laughs) Uh,
2: The question was, uh, how does engaging and embracing people with mental health challenges help the church expand its imagination?
3: Well, uh, the missiologist uh, Leslie Newbegin many years ago in a book called The Gospel in the Pluralist Society. It's a really great book. The final chapter of that book is called The Church as the Hermes. Of the gospel. And what he means by that is the church is a place where the gospel is interpreted and lived out. So when you look at the church, you should see Jesus, you should see the gospel in action. And if you don't, then the church has a problem. And so I think what, amongst many other things, what the presence of people who live with mental health challenges does. It's challenges us to do that, to be the kind of community that is Jesus, irrespective of who you are, what you're doing, mm-hmm. how you, how, how, you know, what your, your story has been, which is what the body of Christ is. You know, the, the thing that marks the body of Christ is diversity, not homogeneity, not that we're all the same, it's, but they're all different. Like. Mm-hmm. And within that, that's difference, sometimes difference good, sometimes difference bad, but that difference is always valued. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we can't all be heads, we can't all be tails, we can't all be hands, uh, <coughs> and we can't all be well at the same time. And so that's, that, that's, that, to me, is a beautiful image of what the church could look like if we just take everybody, as you say, as made in the image of God and try to live
4: out that way. Yeah. And
3: I think if we, if, that, if we do that, then the church can be the hermetic of the gospel.
4: You know, people well, can well. see it. Yeah, very and, that, well. and that resonates. I think of um, Archbishop Justin Welby, who was here recently in, in Canada, and when he met with the indigenous leaders, and he, he had many beautiful things to say, but one of the things he said was, the body of Christ is not complete without you and your customs, and you're, like, we need you. And, you know, and I just think, absolutely. Beautiful example of that, yeah.
2: Mm -hmm. Um, Another question that we've got is... um, uh, it is currently a statement often heard in addictions uh, in the addictions field that the opposite of addiction is connection. Uh, would this apply to mental health challenges as well? Um, this person thinks that they could, but do you think that maybe the opposite of a mental health challenge or a mental health struggle would be connection?
4: I, I mean, I yeah, I'm just trying to get my head around the opposites. I think I, I think persons are defined relationally. Hmm. I think our worth is attributable to. Relationships. Hence, I go back to that comment of what's the difference between me and someone who's addicted to a substance on the streets? It's relationships. So, um, uh my worth and value is attached to my relationship to God, my relationship to self, my relationship to others and my relationship to the created order. so i I, I think in some sense yeah, we can track with that and addictions I would see as a, a, a an ex- expression of um, self-soothing of, of, of mm. soothing seeking to soothe pain yeah. deep pain so um, and I think relationships are uh, yeah are, are humanize us I mm-hmm. think that's that's why we're here. that's yeah. how God's made us. Yeah,
3: well I wouldn't add much to that, other than that, you know, healing is connection. Mm. And if you, even within, the, even within the, the miracles of Jesus, you know, he heals the leper or he heals the woman with issue of blood because they're alienated from society because their particular disability alienates them from society and it takes away their personhood. Uh, and so, yeah, you've, you, there's a bit of fixing and mending in there, but the real thing is reconnection yeah. with your community, yeah. with God, yeah. with him. So I think that, yeah, we need to rethink and understand and know what healing is in that as,
0: way. as you guys both say that, and I think the question is a great question, um, I guess we'll take one more after, but I have, just to kind of follow up on that, I'm kind of thinking of people who may be listening who just feel desperately lonely, mm-hmm. and so hear that kind of thing, like that it's about connection, and then yeah. think, well, what what on that. earth does this mean for me? Yeah. Um, what would, how would you kind of <laughs> speak to them?
3: Yeah. I mean, there's a brokenness in loneliness, there's no question. When not, people don't choose to be lonely. Yeah. Uh, but I think that the fact that there are so many lonely people within our communities is actually a, a very negative reflection on the church. Mm. The church is the community of the friends of Jesus. It, it, it exists to help to introduce people to one another and to introduce people to Jesus. And yet, even with, within our communities, there's lots and lots of lonely people that don't, mm. aren't able to find that connection. I think the church should be there. What people shouldn't think is, I'm disconnected, and therefore I'm either ill or I'm yeah. sinful or. Mm-hmm. Thank, thank uh, you. Uh, yeah. So that that's not at all what either of us are, are saying. We're simply saying that healing comes when we find good relationships. Yeah.
4: yeah, and I would say there are many disconnected people who are staunch members of churches as well. they're just yeah. not engaging in that in the way that you know they may be. Paying lip yeah. service to yeah. you know they may be paying their tithe and not cussing. You, you can be lonely and proud, but they can yeah. yeah. So I think there is and and, and I always think you know, I often facetiously say you know if only there was an organization at the center of every town and city in Canada yeah. that had a building that people could meet in and it was if focused only. on. If only it if existed, only. <laughs> you know um, the church defined the geopolitical landscape of of the world. Yeah. That's why there's a church at the center of every town and city in in England and Scotland. There's a steeple everywhere, and and before the welfare state. They did yeah. education and healthcare, and so this is just got to kind of look back at our history, like yeah. the church, and, and look does forward this. at the possibility.
3: There's, a, there's another dimension I think it's worth thinking about because that's, 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 that's a great point, Dan. um I was doing a, a, talking to a conference on dementia uh, for people in um, Malaysia, and I was talking about this idea of, of connectedness, and particularly for people living with dementia. How, your personhood is determined very often by us by your ability to remember things and mm-hmm. remember who you are, remember where you are, remember f- f- who you've been. In that way, and so when that happens, people begin to doubt their personhood. Uh, and the person I was speaking, was having a, the kind of a debate with. It wasn't a debate; it was a, it was a conversation with. Said, "Yeah, that's right for you guys." uh, She says, in our culture, that doesn't happen because that's not what your personhood is. Your personhood is determined by your community. And so if somebody gets dementia or the memory problems they don't lose the person, oh, because yeah. they're, they're still in the family, they're still looked after. You them. speak
0: about that so well, about schizophrenia and finding it's things it's things, it's it's
3: the same. It's the same yeah. dynamic. What happens is if you take them out of the family and put them into a, a, a healthcare facility, that's when things become different, yeah. because they're disconnected from that oh, community yeah. there. And so there's a real Western dimension to, to that, the, the way we're thinking. And maybe that's part of the church's problem, that we think about ourselves as individuals who just happen to get together, rather than as communities huh. who are, de- are determined by one another.
4: And that and that Western philosophical thought is that Western philosophical thought is in a huge minority in the world. That's the irony. Of yeah, course. right. Yeah, we yeah, think, yeah, oh well, yeah. we know what we're doing, and the rest <laughs> yeah. of the world yeah. are living in this communal way. And well, I was know. just
3: thinking that when you, when you were talking about the, the Archbishop and, and the indigenous person. Yeah, it's, it's two clashes of worldviews as well as everything else. Like, but yeah. mm. in a constructive way, because if you listen. Yeah, you'll che- uh,
0: Well said. Do you have one more good question?
2: Uh, I do, yeah. uh, and it addresses how uh, for leaders within faith communities who maybe have their own mental health challenges um, and struggles, how how can they effectively uh, maybe guide their churches and lead their churches in ways that they can be supportive and be safe places for for others struggling with mental health problems when maybe they they don't know how to talk about it themselves or deal Mm. with their own you know problems and struggles
4: i I think one of the i mean as someone who was a pastor who was nearly burnt out and didn't really understand that but i I had anti-feeling i i was i'd been numb for a year before i realized i hadn't laughed or cried in over 12 months i was just numb um, I was just existing, and you can preach for a year. Oh yeah, yeah, and and no one notices, right? So that's kind of scary. But so having been there, I think, I mean, I'm gonna say, and I mean it, like the sanctuary course is actually yeah. designed to help open up conversations about that. Um, but you know, Brené Brown talks about how you know vulnerability is 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 so important, right? Vulnerability opens up possibilities and opportunities, but people will use vulnerability against you. They'll, they'll throw your vulnerability oh, yeah, back so
0: difficulties or something yeah or something.
4: they'll use that uh, kind of as a weapon so i think um it takes great bravery it takes um trying to find a support network that will hold you but ultimately i think it it is about leaning into that vulnerability and 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 being a, a leader a, a kind of a leader with scars and by the I way mean, we worship a god who has scars yeah. so that's kind of it's kind of convenient you know it's like it's just embodying that the ethic thanks so much uh, well, that so, was fantastic. Yeah,
0: and we're going to go read books now and use the sanctuary course. Oh and, yeah, uh, it's free. It is. <laughs> it's free. <I> mean, <laughs> yeah.
2: un- unfortunately, like John's free. books aren't free, but I will say they are uh, well worth it.
0: They don't sell well in Scotland.
2: <laughs> 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 it's only in Canada, but it's well. well. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So, uh, gentlemen, thank you both for thank being you here. So I think much. we have gifts, don't we?
2: Yes, they're in the fridge, Amanda. Oh, Do you yes. want to grab they're them? They're in the
0: fridge. We have fridge for you guys, please. and uh, so but we'll sign off here because <laughs> yeah. somebody has to this go to another listening. building on the campus to get the gifts, and so uh, we will <laughs> we will say thank you guys so much, and we're going to obviously keep following. Thanks to the studio yes, audience, thank, thank you. you. You guys gave time on a Friday, uh, Friday lunchtime, afternoon, middle of the Greatly appreciated. Uh, thanks so much. Thank you very oh, much. You. Oh, oh,
3: Thank you. Fantastic
0: rector's cupboard releases a new episode every other friday the podcast is a production of reflector project hosts are todd weeb and allison williams cupboard master for tastings and locations is ken bell production and social media by amanda minor for past episodes and other content visit rectorscupboard.ca. thanks for listening